0: autumn, everyone. I'm Gail Brandeis, Editor-in-Chief of Tefera Journal, and this is Tefera Talk. We have some cool changes afoot at Tefera Journal, which I'd love for you to know about. Our fall issue is coming out soon. Please look for that. We're going to be moving to a twice-yearly print model instead of three digital issues in one print a year with the same amount of content in those two journals. And so you'll get to hold them and smell them, and they'll be beautiful physical objects in the world. So if you have not subscribed, I encourage you to do so. If you have subscribed, be on the lookout for your fall issue coming soon. I also wanted to share that we recently changed our tagline, which is now Fostering Peace Through Literature and Art which is something that we are deeply committed to to building bridges through our writing and our artwork through cultivating compassion through art and it's something that is desperately needed in our times and it's something that our wonderful guest does so beautifully in his own work today we have martin moran i'm so excited to welcome him to the studio He really, truly does a gorgeous job of fostering peace through his own literature and art as both a writer and as an actor. He is the author, most recently, of the really powerful, beautiful memoir All the Rage, A Quest, which explores the concepts of anger and compassion and forgiveness in the wake of childhood sexual abuse. I highly recommend it. It's incredible and I'm so eager to talk with him about it. His earlier memoir, The Tricky Part, won the 2005 Lambda Nonfiction Prize as well as other honors, and both memoirs have been performed internationally as award-winning stage productions, so they exist both on the page and on the stage in different forms. His writing has appeared all over the place, including The New York Times, And he has appeared on many stages, as well as on many screens, as an actor, um, including on Broadway. And I am just so delighted to have him here. Welcome, Martin, and thank you so much for joining us. Let me turn your microphone on.
1: You speak so glowingly about my work. It's a great pleasure to, to be with you.
0: Well, it is, it's is—it's such a pleasure to have you, and each ounce of that glow is earned. <laughs> it's deserved. It's um, really important, <laughs> beautiful work. And I found all the rage really resonant for me in so many ways. I'm someone who also has had a complicated relationship with anger. It's not been an easy emotion for me to claim, you know, as you... Explore in your own work, in your own life. And I've found that since the election last fall, it's been easier for me to tap into my anger and to try to use it in good ways by calling my representatives and things of that nature. And I'm curious to know if your own relationship with anger has changed since the election, too. I'd love to hear whether there's an update you could give to your your incredible meditations on anger that you explore in this book?
1: <laughs> it's really the salient question of the day, isn't it? This, this yeah. such an evident, uh, manifestation of fra- fracturing it and, uh, of, of a seeming fracturing of our, of our culture and our, our dear country. And, and indeed world. And I, you know, I don't know if there's so much an update on my relationship with anger, but I do have to say that what you just said about like calling your representative and it—it's that you know I read a lot about Gandhi when I was re- writing the book and about and you know mm-hmm. there were these amazing passages where Gandhi says, "Well, of course, of course I'm angry. I mean, it's not even worth talking about. Of course I am. It—it's but it's always about viewing it in a certain way." being able to, to experience it as an energy that is focusable toward, uh, you know, action, toward service. The, the thing that I find most often since the election is that that temptation to go into the spin, the rage-spinning place mm-hmm. of feeling uh, so powerless, you know, it's really the base of it is so much fear of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lack of control and fear of where... Well, fear of where we are. And so when you say meditation on anger, it reminds me also of the word meditation. There's a sense of taking a big breath and checking into the notion of how you're, you know, being reactionary or, or can you be aware? And it's, I guess what I'm finding is it doubling down on the effort to be, to you, to be aware of the feelings and Mm. to channel, channel the anger so that it's transformative and not, Mm -hmm. um, and not, uh, you don't get stuck by it, you know, paralyzed by it because it's, it's shocking what, you know, day by day what's happening. And for those of us who are on the fringe or feel different in any way of, in color or sexuality or immigration status, you know, so it's, um, anyway, I do Mm -hmm. feel like I'm, I'm in a more intimate relationship with anger, certainly. And, the, the call to practice awareness and breath and, and trans, transform it, transformation of, of the anger you're feeling. Mm-hmm. feels all the more pressing.
0: Yes. Yes, sort of along those lines, I wonder just what, what advice you might have for people who have been triggered by recent news about sexual assault with the whole Harvey Weinstein mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the news is so full of stories of sexual abuse right now, and I know that's been triggering for a lot of people. And with your own history, I wonder just how the news has been affecting you and what, what suggestions you might have for people who are maybe sharing their stories for the first time and are struggling with those emotions, or who are feeling really triggered and don't know what to do with those sensations?
1: Wow, well, that's a big Might question. Do you have any,
0: any advice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, in my own work, uh, clearly the, part of the narrative thread of what I've been called forth to write about is my experience as a young kid being uh, sexually abused, and of course, the threads of my work are, there are so many other th- threads to it, but it's, I think it is mm-hmm. through the window of what happened to me that I'm sort of facing down the complexity of being, you know, the human experience, just, you know, that that these mm-hmm. incredibly complex things happen to us. And so I've, I've been meditating on this for some years, writing both the tricky part and all the rage. And I do realize that again and again, you know, like with the Penn State scandal abuse some years ago for, for, the boys on the, mm-hmm. the in the sports team. Now this incredibly pervasive, uh, you know, this this the horrors arising around Harvey Weinstein, these men in power, in in this incredible power dynamic, um, and so many people coming forth. I think the only advice I can I would say is that to put light and air around it is indeed uh, the the path toward it dissolving from being a grip to putting space around it by sharing it by, for men, there's a great organization called one in six. Um, It's a a beautiful website that um, for women, there are countless, uh, there are a lot of uh, groups, outreach groups. And I, I just, I guess the main thing I would say is don't hesitate to reach out and speak and connect with others because Mm -hmm. it's, it's a common it's way too common and the complexity of it is takes a you know takes a lot of unraveling to to come to some kind of peace with the the reality of it and i think that the the place i've gotten to is you know that i keep getting to is that this is who i am and what happened is part of makes up part of who i am and i am who I am, partly because of what happened, and there's a way of that it calls forth a great amount of self-care and self-love to, mm-hmm. to, to to realize you're not damaged goods, you're not alone, and that you know that this this somewhere is an experience that you can truly grow from and heal from, and I guess just to urge you know to not despair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That Thank makes you
0: that's, that's, Oh it makes perfect sense And I think that Your work alone Is going to empower so many people To share their own stories And make peace And just seeing the deep work That you've done With your own story I I, I know will be And is so Incredibly inspiring And I'm curious to know um, Sort of the difference in experience sharing this work on the stage and on the page, and what the gifts of each form have been for you, because I, I'm sure once once you take a, a piece to an audience, you have that connection. But then when you're writing, you can you can really dig deeper, and I. Well, I don't want to put thoughts into your own head, but I, I would love to hear, um, yes, just just what the gifts of each have been and also what the experience was like translating the stage production into a book. Because you mentioned in your acknowledgments that it took several years to craft the book, and we're so lucky to have the same editor at Beacon Press, the wonderful yeah. Amy Caldwell. Amy, and Amy Caldwell, yeah. I Yes, and I would really love to to hear what that process was like. And yes,
1: yeah, for sure. Tell, well, Amy, each one yeah, Amy was actually a wonderful part of it because uh I you know, I'll I'll say this. I'm I'm an actor and have been for some decades, done a lot of Broadway shows and a lot of off broad you know, plays and TV and film and so on. And there's a way in which The physical reality of storytelling, I mean, being in a room with people around the campfire, say, or in the black box theater, there's a moment-to-moment engagement of uh, you're telling a story, like, you know, in front of people, and you're really bonded in each other's physical presence, and as a crafter of theater... It, and crafting, you know, say a 70- or 80-minute piece, there's a great deal of sort of the telling omission. You know, there's a great deal of like structuring mm-hmm. things with incredible concision. And there are also sort of, there's a need, it's incumbent upon you, I think, when you're doing a theatrical piece, that there is an event of sorts, that it's structured and it's, in a way that there's a, something happens in the room during the course of those 70 minutes. There's an epiphany. There's a, there's a group uh, event and so I find that the, the the experience of telling is extremely physical. It's in, in the body. You know, you know you have your,
0: mm-hmm. your
1: your fellow souls engaged. And there's a way in which there's a, a rising action, you know, a point of no return, a climax. A, you know, there's a structure there of, of over the 70 minutes. When I would shift the language, and this, the language is much more sort of off the cuff and spontaneous, the jokes and that sort of thing, and there's a... I sort of my, my theatrical style is such that it's really being fresh minted and made up on the spot always it's not it's very scripted but it sounds very off the cuff but the experience of sitting in a chair you know alone with a book is a very intimate you know where you can set it down and pick it up so it has a very different rhythm and the sentences have a different rhythm too I think and, and there just is a lot more room for a lot more territory and detail and I found that each form fed the other the theatrical mm-hmm. experience helped me feel the pull and the engine of the story, whereas the time mm-hmm. taking the time to craft sentences for the book enhanced the language of the theater piece, and the theater piece sort of enhanced the the engine of the book but they're they're very different creatures mm-hmm. that both cover. Similar, you know, the same territory, and I did the bo- I did the same with both my memoirs, The Tricky Part and All the Rage. They were both off-Broadway plays as well as full memoirs, and uh, so it's a real, you know, it's a very definitely. There's a lot of craft difference, uh, but they really mm-hmm. feed one another. It's it's a it's kind of fun uh, to hear the music of how each is different. And and Amy was helpful. Amy Caldwell was a was one. She'd say, Marty, that works on the stage, but I don't think this is going to work as a. <laughs> Especially when it comes to humor <laughs> Humor has to be written quite differently And these books being a, Even about intent, the intense things they are They're filled with a lot of humor Yes, yes
0: And you're clearly Someone who loves language I love yeah. how you Unpack words Throughout you. the book you, know, you look into the etymology I loved learning you know, That in different languages Anger meant things like choke or I think it was um, narrow and grief. Mm-hmm. And just that deep attention to language, I think, was so compelling and beautiful for me. And I, I wonder what some of your favorite and least favorite words are. I, I love words so much myself. And are there any <laughs> words that you're especially fascinated with these days?
1: These days? You know, I, golly, uh, I just, I love. Every day I'm discovering, I mean, there are certain words that when I hear them always sort of ring and calm me down. You know, the word grace I love and, it, and, and, and mm. unfolds, it has so many meanings. Um, quietude mm-hmm. is a word that keeps coming to me lately in this noisy, mm. fractious time. I feel like I feel really called to quietude. And um oh, that's a word just, that I just
0: think hearing about. that word makes me feel better. <laughs> no, I'm Thank glad. You.
1: I think we need to dare to be, you know, like just it's okay to be quieter. And I really feel devoted, much more devoted these days. Here I am yakking on your wonderful program, but I feel so much more devoted lately to silence and to listening. Mm. Really so mm-hmm. I you know listening is one of my favorite words lately. I feel like that this, if if nothing else since this political, since you started talking about that, I feel a great call mm-hmm. to listen and to add um, a good measure of quietude to the media, yeah. to the noise.
0: Well, I think that's so necessary because I think with the way things are fractured, people aren't listening to each other and it seems as if you've done a great deal of listening in your work when you Take your show around the world. It it seems like you have a lot of conversations. It's not just performing. You you will open it up for conversation afterwards, and mm-hmm. I Very love often. that that's been an element of your work is creating space for conversation and for allowing people to share their own stories.
1: Yeah, then, well, when you know when you write memoir, right from that personal, uh, you know that that imperative you feel to excavate the mm-hmm. self. And, and as as I gather you do and have as a writer as well, Gail, that you're writing about, uh, you know, from the well of the river of your own experience, that that call to write so personally to the point that it's, you know, you're uncovering hopefully those universal human inquiries at the center of your work, that it, what happens when you share it or write it, you know, it unlocks a lot of energy in other people, it seems, in a wonderful way mm-hmm. of shortening the distance between ourselves. And so people often want and need to speak and speak to the questions that are brought up in the in the, uh, the personal work. And so yeah. I find that I do do a lot of, you know, listening and talking with others who say, you know, that reminds me of the time this happened when I was 13, my sister suddenly died or... This is what happened in my family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What was it I'd had such trouble forgiving my father or, you know, whatever, these many, many discussions
0: mm-hmm. we have. Yes, my, my memoir comes out next month, and I have been feeling a lot of fear around it, just that mm-hmm. fear of being exposed. But when I started yeah. shifting my thinking into to realizing that this will create space for conversation, I find myself feeling this great release that this story isn't just going to be my story now it will be hopefully a door to other stories and I'm really Absolutely. eager Absolutely. to be you know yeah. the, the vessel for, for other people to to open yeah. up their own it's stories. a
1: fantastic yeah it's a fantastic paradox you've written this memoir and you've dug deep deep into your own river of experience as I say and the paradox is the deeper you've gone into yourself the less it's you it's like it's you yeah. and not you it's it's the self of no <laughs> self because you you crack through to the place where you realize oh you know ego is always going to be have moments of fear and moments of clutching but the beautiful thing is you've got this you begin to have this great practice of exactly what you've done is create a, a shakti a space of of an inquiry mm. a human inquiry that is that rings chords in other people over who are you know, feeling the same thing, suffering in the same way, searching in the same way. And it's, it can still, I still, I still have moments of incredible shame. I can't believe I've written about the fact that I was, you know, had sex when I was a kid with this older man, or I let it happen, all the shame and all the fear of talking about it, but realizing again and again that it was, it's, you're being called to examine a human question. Not, it's not about you. Mm. And so, if I felt like I was really writing about Marty, I would. Then I really want to curl up, and you know, I mean, I'm not in a grandiose way. You're writing. There's an inquiry. There's an inquiry at the center of what yeah.
0: you're looking yeah. at. Yeah. And your inquiry within this book takes you to so many powerful places. And one thread of the book that was so moving, they're also moving, but one one thread that I would love to discuss a little bit right now is your experience with Siba, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could share with listeners unfamiliar with the book um, just what that experience was like tra- uh, interpreting for him.
1: Yes, What's, what uh, Gail is referring to, for you listeners who haven't read the book, of course, that is that a big thread in my book of many threads is Working with uh, refugees uh, who are seeking asylum in the United States, and I particularly I tripped upon this situation where I served as an interpreter, and I still do, at times from uh, mostly, mostly young people who are survivors of torture coming from primarily, in my case, from Chad, Cameroon, uh, uh Congo who are French speaking uh, French they were of course French colonies at some one point so the French is the national language in many of the places and so that tends to be the language we work in and I uh, helped with Siba in the book I became very close with him helping him uh, build his case for asylum in his interviews with doctors and uh, with psychiatrists and so on and my own uh tender sort of obsession with how he journeyed through what happened to him as a survivor of torture from Chad. And what I was experiencing as, a you know, this middle-aged white guy in the United States who'd been abused as a kid, finding these parallels and not wanting to foist parallels mm-hmm. upon the situation, but just this universal experience of uh, what is it to let go of and to forgive and uh seba really uh just it becomes an, an amazing relationship of uh, just asking him really you know seba aren't you angry?
0: Mm-hmm. the people
1: who tortured you and he he ultimately utters a sentence that surprises me to no end when he says, you know i of course I'm angry sometimes, but i but you know they they didn't know what they're doing, most of those men grew up with nothing. They're an alphabet. He uses the word an alphabet, which is a, you speak of language. It's a word that exists in English that I never heard. But really just an alphabet, without alphabet, ignorant. He just said, you know, they don't know what they're doing. It was almost like Christ on the cross saying, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And there was a part of him that says, look, they they had nothing. They grew up with nothing, and they, are, they joined the army, and they were just doing their job, in a sense. And I was in the other ethnic group, and I've got to, you know, I'm not going to hang on to that. I need to, I need to move forward, and just his simple. I, I don't. Know, he was an amazing guy, and uh, so that's the one of the many relationships in the book. But Siba becomes a primary one and a sort of view into into forgiveness and and the moving through mm-hmm. trauma that I gather from a, an African refugee.
0: Yeah, so powerful, and I'm curious to know whether you've reconnected with him, because you mentioned that you had lost touch with him, and I'm curious to know whether he's seen the book or or if you've heard from him since the book has come out.
1: You know, I haven't. I noticed that he has a Facebook page, and I sent him a message. Um, I know he's become very busy. He lives in Houston now, as far as I know, and he's a truck driver. Um, But I have not had a full-out conversation with him since the book came out. There's a way in which um, I think he's really. I asked the people that I worked with at the International Institute, where I, through whom I met Siba, and they said it often happens. <laughs> in many ways, I was such a deep part of his first moments, his first, the struggling days in New York. And there's a way in which he's moved in these years way beyond that. And I I, I don't know really if it's uh, he, but for whatever reason he hasn't reached out back toward you know. Uh, okay. and I've lost, okay. I don't have an email or a phone number but, so I'm not in current touch with him but I, I'm hoping and believing that he's doing okay in, in Houston
0: I hope so too and I saw on your website that you're writing a book titled An Alphabet which I'm so grateful you introduced me to that word I'd never heard it myself and it's a fascinating word and I'm curious to know what you're doing with that now
1: well, it's a bit it's a continued exploration of um actually I continue to work with refugees and um uh, and, and alphabet was actually at one point was a um the name of this book all the rage and it transformed mm. into it transformed into um all the rage eventually and then I do have a, a the beginnings of what might one day m- be a continuance of a book of An Alphabet in Plowshares. I wrote an essay called An Alphabet that was also based on my work with Siba uh, and other refugees and also uh, of just working, you know, the, the absurdity at the same time of working uh, in a Broadway musical. But in a way, An, an Alphabet was a uh, group of essays that I had worked on in some I still, but that most of them became a part of, it, of All the Rage. The book that mm. we're now came out this past year.
0: Yes. Could you please share a bit from the book for our listeners? I would love for them to get a taste of it.
1: Sure. I'm thinking maybe I was thinking, depending on the time here, maybe a shorter abstract. And since you, um, since you spoke about Siba, I thought, well, maybe I'll do a short little bit about Siba, just a. Oh, that would be lovely. Thank you. Um, maybe it's us coming out on a st- on the street corner, um, mm. uh, just after an interview with a psychiatrist, one of the first interviews of his for his asylum claim. So here's just a short little bit, Gail. Siba Thank keeps you. shaking. You bet. Siba keeps shaking his head as if pushing away an unwanted vision. His chest is heaving, tears spilling down his cheeks, but he is silent, choking back any sound. Respire. I whisper, breathe. I I don't know what else to say. We've just stepped out of a psychologist's office, his second required medical interview. He told his story yet again, laid it all out for another affidavit to be filed in support of his case. He spoke of his dream to see his family again. Then, abruptly, the session ended. The doctor's time was up. Now we're out on the street, and as we walk, I'm thinking of what an asylum officer once said about deciding cases such as SEBA's. I have to feel pity for them, that's all. They need to make me cry, or I'm likely to deny their claim. We are heading west on East 86th Street, the leafless trees of Central Park a few blocks ahead. It's February and frigid. We move through the midday glare, the crowd weaving around us all suits and purpose. We pass under a green awning, a doorman in a long coat studded with golden buttons. For the briefest moment, I raise my right hand and place it against Siba's back, between his shoulder blades. I dig into my jacket pocket, come up with a crumpled napkin. He takes it, presses it to his nose, and wipes his eyes. Then he stops suddenly near the corner of Park Avenue and looks down at the gleaming sidewalk. "What? What, I, what is it, I ask? A woman clad in fur. Her poodle on a leash steps around us. Si je n'arrête pas, he pauses, chokes his tears. Si, si je n'arrête pas de pleurer, je deviens aveugle. If I don't stop crying, I will go blind. Oh, oh no, ce, ce n'est pas vrai, I tell him. It's not true. Crying crying won't make you blind. I think tears are okay. They're Tears are helpful. Tears are... But what do I know? I hear my awkward French drift off into the cold. I wonder who might have told him such a thing, if he means it as literally as it seems he does. I wonder what it might feel like to know that how well, how convincingly you tell your own story could be the difference between sanctuary and deportation, between liberty and a forced return to peril. Siba lifts his head, and we continue on, crossing Park Avenue. So that's one little Beautiful. section of the book. Thanks. just thought it would be the short one there. Thank
0: you. Sure. Yes, Thank you so much for sharing There's so much in this book That is so timely And so important And I hope that all you listeners Out there will get a copy Of All the Rage It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book And I can't wait to see What you'll write next
1: Thank you, yeah, I'm I really so grateful appreciate that me. Oh, <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm
0: just so grateful to Amy For sending me the book And I want everyone to read it now, and I hope I'll get to see you perform sometime. Thanks. Is there anything, I do hope any last... to be
1: out there. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Oh, wonderful.
0: Uh, um, any, are any there last, any last uh, words you would like to share or any um, just any well, uh, information that you would like to pass along to our
1: listeners? You know, I think one thing, having just read that excerpt and you are you know, being so sweet and supportive about the book, I will say you began the interview asking about the happenings since the election. I do write a lot about the sense of oneness in this book that that in a sense anger as a as a step toward actually understanding uh this illusion of separation that that we're all on this planet in this together, and in writing about Siba and other refugees in this time of such fear and terror around immigration, around other, the you know, the us and the them and the, the sense of the stranger, mm-hmm. I really just want to say that I feel like the book is a song of reminding us that we're one, you know, of lifting the veil of, indif- of indifference yeah. that that keeps us from knowing each other's human plight, that we are absolutely in this together. And I don't have any specific dates at the moment coming up of performing All the Rage or the tricky part, but there are some coming up. And there's a website that, uh, called alltherageplay.com that um, has information about all the, the books and the upcoming performances. And I, I just, um, for those of you who love reading and love literature and um, believe in us shortening the distance between ourselves through story, I thank you for listening and I thank you, Gail, for, you know, for believing in my book and having me on your show.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much, Martin. I am so grateful to have had this time with you and hope that we can have more conversations in the future.
1: Me too, Gail. And good luck oh. with your book coming out next month. I'm really excited for you.
0: Thank you so much. Okay. Very, very grateful. All Take right. Care. So, All right. again, this, thank you. <laughs> you bet. Good night. Good night, good night, and thank you all for tuning in to the wonderful Martin Moran. Um, Again, his website is alltherageplay.com. If you want to know more about him and his work, please check it out. And if you would like to uh, subscribe to Teferret, we're at Teferretjournal.com. You know, just as Martin so beautifully said, we we want to create that bridge between people through our stories and through our art, our poems. So join us, please. And I want to also thank my marvelous producer, RJ Jeffries, for helping make things run smoothly as always. And please join us again on December 20th when I will be talking with poet and children's book author Lesleya Newman. So now on behalf of Tiferet Talk, here's a brief word from the lovely Donna Berstein, who is the founder and publisher of Tefera Journal. Okay, good night. And thanks again for joining us. Hi, this is Donna Baerstein, founder and publisher of Teferret Journal. We first began to publish authors of different faiths and cultural backgrounds in two thousand four. I had recently been introduced to the word Teferret, which means heart, compassion, and reconciliation of opposites. Thirteen years after the launch of our magazine, our world finds itself perhaps more divisive than ever. Reconciliation of seeming opposites is key. I truly hope you enjoy these new Teferret Talk interviews as much as we do. I hope, too, that you will visit our website at com to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, participate in our writing retreats and community forums, or donate to our mission of promoting tolerance through literature and art. Thank you so much for listening.